I think they they touch on something that um, when you get to when you you as you go through life you you're constantly reminded that you don't get where you are in life alone. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Um, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Kate, please go ahead. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Kate Schechter. I'm the president and CEO of World Neighbors, a 71-year-old international development organization that works with uh, very isolated rural populations, primarily farmers in 14 countries around the world. And uh, my background is oddly not really in the countries where I'm working now. It's primarily in the former Soviet Union. Um, I was I was lucky enough to travel a lot when I was a child because my dad was a journalist for Time magazine. And we lived in the Soviet Union and my siblings and I were the first American children to go to Soviet public school. And I learned Russian and for many, many years I worked in the former Soviet countries. But I've been able to take a lot of the things that I've learned over the years from that time and bring them to the other countries where I'm working now. How many years are you now with World Neighbors? Eight years. Eight years, okay, (laughs) yeah. 2014 was when I started, yeah. Wow. And, and so far, what, what are you most proud of? Oh, I'm, I'm so, I, I would say I'm most proud of the staff. We have a very lean organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, as I said, we work in 14 countries and we reach uh, over 600,000 people a year, mm. but we only have 57 staff and we only have um, about eight offices in the capital cities in the various countries where we work. We work in Asia, in South Asia and Southeast Asia, in Africa, in East and West Africa, in Latin America, and in Haiti. And we have these very small teams of people who are full-time workers, and then they go out and they work with communities and community-based organizations, and they identify leaders to help you know, really expand and reach as many people as we do. But um, I, I feel very close to the staff. They're, you know, they're, they're really hard workers and they're very alone. I mean, even before COVID, mm. <laughs> they were out there pounding, you know, pounding the, the hillsides, getting, getting to these very distant places many times on their own. Um, and I love going out and, and meeting the staff and the and the communities where we work, and kind of getting to hear from my staff, you know, about what it's like to be that kind of a 
of a worker to, to be reaching the, the poorest of the poor in the most isolated places where many times no external help has been there before we get there. Maybe one question about, you know, because you alluded to, you know, COVID and, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, that's still going on. Um, how has that affected uh, the work of World Neighbors? Well, when I came into World Neighbors, uh, World Neighbors was going through some financial difficulties. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did was to kind of push as much of the program, uh, sort of operational aspects of the organization out to the field and to really cut back on having you know big offices and cars and this and that and the other thing. Um, and in many cases, if there were only two people in an office in, in a big city, uh, my argument was, why are we paying rent when you really need to? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that um, sort of ratcheting down and, and starting to work from home and making sure that everybody had very good equipment and doing distance meetings, you know, doing Skype meetings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Eight years ago, it was Skype. Now it's yeah, Zoom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were really very, very prepared. I mean, it really, it didn't send the sh sort of shock waves that it has in other places mm -hmm. uh, through work, through our organization. And then in terms of the communities, they are so isolated that we were able to get to them and tell them that we, uh, you know, warn them ahead of time that you're, you know, the, your older children or your husbands are going to come back from the cities or wherever they're working outside of the villages, and they're going to bring COVID with them. Mm -hmm. And you need to be careful and uh, follow these very Thank heavens, you know, the protocols were not so complicated that we couldn't help them to implement them even in the most rural villages. So we've been very, very lucky. Our, our communities have been responsive. They have uh, gotten vaccines when they're available and we've helped them. We've done quite a few vaccine campaigns with uh, local municipalities to try to help people to have access. Um, and we have not had the kind of devastation that, that, that you've seen in some urban areas. You know, we will make sure that in the notes of this podcast, uh, people will be able to find the, the website of World Neighbors. And you, you're also, your organization is also active on social media as well. So we'll make sure they, they, uh, our listeners can find uh, world, everything about World Neighbors. Thank you. Um, as well. Um, Kate, well, you, you know that I started this podcast as a result of a 100-mile walk. Um, it started 10 years ago, and as a result of COVID, I was not able to walk with others. So I mm. thought, okay, I'm going to walk with my guests virtually. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason why I you know, started the 100-mile walk is to raise awareness about hunger, poverty, injustice. Um, if I would ask you, um, you know, for which cause would you walk 100 miles in a week, you know, 15 to 20 miles a day? Uh, what would that cause be? What would the reason that you would walk? I would walk for the primary mission of World Neighbors, which is to help people to help themselves through a process of 
helping people identify their strengths and then lift themselves up using those strengths. Um, I, I feel very inspired by the, by the methodology and by the principles that we work with every day. And I would definitely uh, love to do, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in something very small where um, a group of people around the world walk every day for half an hour. Um, mm. and, we, and then we send pictures to each other of what we saw on our walk. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a sort of mini version of what you've been doing. And it doesn't cool. have the same sort of spiritual aspect that yours does. But what you find is that even though people are doing it mostly for the exercise, mm -hmm. there is very much of a spiritual aspect of it um, in terms of supporting each other and hearing about why somebody couldn't go today, maybe they're not feeling well or something mm -hmm. happened. So I I would do it. I would I would want to take your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. Well, I you know, although I said I will not walk anymore, and I, somebody else has to do it after ten times. It, <laughs> it seems that I might be involved in the eleventh uh, walk as well. Um, and and besides that. We also developed uh, an app where uh, you can lock your miles that you walk. I mean, you're saying that you walk every day, so you can lock your miles, you get points for it that you can uh, use to um, to help uh, you know certain projects of my organizations around the world because you have a back donor who helps with that. So, no, th thanks for sharing that, Kate. What drives you in life? You know, why? You know, when you wake up in the morning, why do you do that, and what's on your mind? Well, if I'm to be very, very honest with you, what drives me is my family, mm. um, the love of of my of my family. I'm I'm newly a grandmother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my my oldest child had a baby in September, and congratulations! It's really one of the most ex exciting. I mean, you hear about it all the time, mm -hmm. and you kind of roll your eyes and think, "Oh gosh, I don't want to be like all those people." <laughs> constantly talking about their grandchildren but there is such a i mean it's such a miracle to see your own mm. child um, bring a, another human being into the world and it it's really been uh, very inspiring and then of course i i feel that i've been very blessed to to have the job that i do it's such mm. a fulfilling kind of work um, of course, there are huge challenges every day. And, you know, you wake up and you, I'm, I'm, I have a PhD in political science. And of course, I'm a news junkie. So the first mm -hmm. thing I do is find out what happened while we were sleeping. And usually it's pretty horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, you know, being in these small, uh, well, then some of them aren't so small, being in these poorer countries where we have staff who are often risking their own lives to get out to the field. There's, of course, been many, many um, natural disasters, political upheaval, uh, you know, on top of COVID and other um, infectious diseases. So there's always challenges. But, um, but as I said earlier, I mean, it's very inspiring to, to see people really uh, grab the reins and try to help themselves. And in most of the cases, I would say we've been very successful. Uh, and it's really exciting to go back to a community after many years to see the changes that have happened there. Thanks. Oh, I guess I'd add one other thing. Mm -hmm. In in 
this job, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of women around the world, mm. and especially women who have been, um, you know, really have not had the opportunities that we have in the West. Um, and they, they, many of them have not had an opportunity to be educated. Some of them are illiterate. Um, and yet they are so inspiring and they are so thankful for our help. Uh, but you hear these stories of women getting married at, you know, at young ages, having many children, and then finally kind of getting an opportunity to think about themselves and what they want to do in life and lifting themselves up out of these very, very sort of seemingly impossible circumstances. And that's been, for me, also one of the most exciting aspects of my job. That's great to hear because I'm I'm also very passionate about, you know, the, the 17 sustainable development goals. I'm going to have some questions for you about that later. But, you know, SDG goal number five is, is about, you know, the role of, of women and gender in general mm -hmm. and, and uh, actually the, the enormous um, impact that it has if you invest in girls and, and women. Yes, that's that's great to hear. I would like to go back to your grandchild, you know, about young children and youth, um, because very very often I uh, when I walk in in you know in person with people, actually also when I talk uh, with people on, online like with you now, uh, we talk about the younger generation, and because with walking, as you mentioned yourself, you know, it's very often people perceive it as a kind of a spiritual experience and um but then when we talk about that it's but the younger generation seems to be different uh the way they perceive uh, religion and spirituality um you know although some folks i've talked with uh, and walked with said no 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 they're very similar they might not be attracted to institutionalized religion but they're still spiritual they're still religious what do you see happening among youth in your community well, I, I have the same feeling that you might not, they may not be attracted to sort of organized, institutionalized religion, um, even though we may have tried to inculcate to them in that when they were younger, but they definitely have uh, a longing for community. They enjoy community uh, experiences. I'm, uh, I, in, I live in Washington, D.C., and it's very hard to get a plot in a community garden, so you have to sign up years in advance. But mm. I finally got one very, not very close to my house. Um, and I went last weekend to help with just a clean, it was a big cleanup. We, about, I think 40 people were invited to come and 25 showed up. But what really it, what I found so fascinating was it was mostly young people. Mm. Um, who came, it was raining, you know, there was kind of this drizzle that we've had quite a bit lately. And uh, it wasn't very warm and it was a little windy. And they came and they were so excited to have this opportunity to work together. They were asking a lot of questions about the, the gardening and, you know, about the various types of weeds we were pulling and what was good and what was bad. And I thought, you know, they wanted as much as anybody else. They they need that that connection with their fellow human being, um, and it comes in different forms. It may not be 
going to church or going to temple or going to mosque, but it's, but it's definitely, um, it's a human need, I think. <laughs> Interesting that you, that you say that, I mean, you know, working with the soil and, and looking at uh, doing home gardens, etc. Um, it's, it's also in line with what I heard is, you know, that, that the younger generation is very concerned about climate. Um, yes. Taking care of, of Mother Earth. So, so uh, yeah, that's, that's great to hear that you uh, observed it. And yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that. Before we started our conversation, we talked already a little bit about, uh, you know, a lot is going on in the world. And unfortunately, many things are not that great. Um, what are some of the things that you worry about at the moment? Or, or maybe let us focus what you worry about most at the moment. Well, for me, the, the, inv the Russian invasion of Ukraine has a sort of personal aspect to mm -hmm. it. And I worry about it a lot. <laughs> uh, it's something I'm sort of constantly thinking about. And uh, I, I feel the same despair that, you know, millions of us feel about this situation. It, it seemed like something that couldn't happen. And then all of a sudden it did. And, and we're all kind of, some of us are still kind of in shock from it. I spent many years working in Ukraine. Um, I, I think the first time I went to Ukraine was right after the fall of communism in 1992. There were hundreds, hundreds of children on the streets, street children that were uh, the, the institutional, the, during the Soviet period, children were institutionalized some were really orphans, but many of them were living in, in what they called boarding schools. And they were so, what they called social orphans. Their parents had put them in the boarding schools because they felt that they would get a better education and they'd be better off in these institutions. And all of that collapsed overnight. And you just saw all these children on the streets. And actually in my work um, at the World Bank, I, I got involved in trying to address that problem with the power of the bank. Mm -hmm. And um, and also George Soros had invested a lot of money in trying to address the street children problem. Um, so that was the beginning. And then I, I spent many years doing healthcare development work in Ukraine. And uh, you know, I've been to all these towns that you see uh, being destroyed now, Kharkiv, Mariupol, uh, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, um, and, and Kiev, of course, and Lviv. And so, and I have many friends there. And so that that's something that, um, I can't say I feel despair, but I definitely feel anxiety about it. Mm. <laughs> and And I, I'm assuming that you also still have connections, you know, with the people that you know in Russia. Um, but yeah, my first question is, yeah, so it's good. Okay. Well, what are they, what are they saying to you? Well, honestly, we're not really communicating. Mm. I think it's risky for them. Uh, it's, it's so reminiscent of my time when I was a child and we, mm. 
we were, we knew our apartment was tapped. We knew that we were being listened to. If people came to visit, we wrote notes to each other. Um, you're always thinking about what were the ramifications of these Soviet people communicating with Americans and how, you know, once we were gone, what would happen to them? Um, and my father, of course, you know, in reporting for Time magazine, he met many um, dissidents and people who risked their lives to talk to him. And actually, that's the way I feel right now about my Russian friends. I have not reached out to them. I think I've done it mostly to protect them. I'm friends on, with a lot of people on Facebook and that those, mm -hmm. those connections have been blocked. And uh, so for the time being, we have to all just accept that it's too dangerous to talk to each other. Where do you still see hope? I, like many Ukrainians, believe they will prevail. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, I am a little surprised at how well the, the Ukrainian army has done, but I think also all the assistance we've been giving them has been essential. And I think, I hope we will continue to support them and to help them win this fight. Um, I, uh, I believe that ultimately it's the passion of the people to save their own country that will prevail. Just as, as in many other wars, that's been the case. Um, and I, I also think that this is a case of, um, the most of the world understands that this is craziness and that mm. there is right and wrong and this is wrong. Um, and we can't, it's not really something you can debate um, mm. that, that, that this is just craziness to go into a country and destroy it the way they have. And so given the fact that there's such unity um, in believing that this is, that this is wrong and it needs to be stopped, I, I have a lot of hope that it will be stopped. You know, a part of where I uh, see hope is the fact that as a world, we identified 17 goals that we, uh, you know, we said if we are going to achieve those goals before 2030, you know, our world is going to be uh, better. Mm -hmm. You know, you can debate that if 17 is too much and or too little. Mm -hmm. um, but if I ask you, um, you know, what do you want the world to know about uh, 17 sustainable development goals? What is it that you would like to mention? Well, I think um, we were headed in the right direction before COVID. And for the first time in, in, in recorded history, we really were starting to, to uh, tackle a lot of these massive problems that people thought were, were uh, impossible to, to conquer. We had more and more girls going to school. We had much more food security than we had ever had before. People had access to water. Um, we were starting to have um, more and more people, uh, you know, lifting themselves out of poverty and reaching a, getting to a higher level of income. Things were on the right trajectory. And I think when you saw that happening, you knew it was possible. Now, of course, with the two years of, of the devastation of the pandemic, and things coming to a grinding halt. We've, we've lost a lot of that momentum, but um, 
given that we we saw it once, I believe we can see it again. And you know, I, I actually I, I agree with you. Um, a group in the world, and it's growing now, is is also saying you know one of the reasons that we are going slower than we should is uh, because we need to work on ourselves and as community uh, to work on our abilities and skills to ensure that those 17 goals will be achieved. And they came up with uh, the inner development goals. That's the result of, uh, those are five goals that they identified as a result of a survey that they did among more than a thousand people around the world. Um, I don't know if, if you've heard of them, but um, do you have any thoughts on that particular concept that you need as, a, as an individual and as a community? That you need to well, honestly before I um, had had quote unquote met you. I haven't mm -hmm. quite met you in person yet, but we've met online. <laughs> yeah. I had not heard of the inner development goals, but uh, I I looked them up, and I'm very thankful to you for for teaching me about them, and I'm I'm eager to learn more um, and to participate in that in the development of those goals. I think they they touch on something that. Um, when you get to, when you, you, as you go through life, you, you're constantly reminded that you don't get where you are in life alone, that mm. it always takes others who are willing to, uh, mentor you, to guide you, to give you advice, to, to be your friend, but also sometimes to be a facilitator in, in some, in this world, that's not so easy to get through. And, um, and then to you know, gradually try to do that for the next generation, so that you, you you realize I wouldn't be where I am today without all of those people who helped me. I mean, it's that old idea of the village, you know, that it takes a mm. village to bring a child up, but it really takes it takes many villages for for people to get where they are um, in in positions of leadership. So um, I really love this idea of kind of examining. What more can I learn about myself that will help uh, my, my organization and the people that I'm leading in the organization? Um, but also just to know yourself better, you know, to mm -hmm. understand um, your own fears, anxieties, um, and then uh, to be able to uh, be more creative. I think one of the biggest um, roadblocks in being so busy all the time and running an organization, there's not a lot of time for creativity um, and for allowing your mind to just relax and think about art and making things and, you know, mm. um, and allowing your, your, yourself to write maybe stuff that isn't related to international development. Um, and so I, I look forward to that. I, I hope that um, through learning more about the the inner development goals, I'll be able to do that. Let me dig a little bit deeper and ask you the following question. But, you know, this is about you. Um, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music um, that embodies for a big part of what you are about, which song or piece of music would that be? Well, there's an old folk song. It's an American song called The Water is Wide. And um, 
it's actually kind of a sad song. It's about how the water, it, it, there's, it's very far to get to the other side. And um, it, it's been sung by various different musicians over the years. Uh, but the, the apparently the original lyrics were that, uh, th that love um, is, it flourishes when you're young, but then it dies when you get older. And my husband and I, were, we got married pretty young and we changed the lyrics <laughs> to say that, uh, you know, love is really exciting at the beginning, but it stays strong and, and um, just gets better and better over the years. And um, the song is about how far the water is and you can't do it alone. You really need each other to 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 row the boat and get across and i love that metaphor i think that captures so much about life in general so i i thank you for letting me know ahead of time about thinking about a song because there's an awful lot of songs i love but that one is really kind of a core song in my life and and is there because you said there are several renditions is there one rendition that speaks special to you or it doesn't really matter um, James Taylor did it many years ago. Okay. A beautiful rendition of it. Okay. In the original lyrics, which are a little depressing. <laughs> okay, but we will keep that in mind when we are going to listen to that song. And, <laughs> and again, to a reminder to the listeners, you know, we have uh, made on Spotify a, um, a song list with all the songs that are picked by my uh, guests. So uh, it's quite a... It's becoming quite a list of interesting songs of all kinds of genres, from classical to R&B to heavy metal and uh -huh. folk. So um, I would encourage you to check that out. Kate, you know, we have a lot of, of discussions within uh, CWS, my organization, about that our sector, the NGO sector, is changing, and that we need to who look at you know what type of changes we need to make in terms of our business model and how we work with younger generations, etc. Um, what do you see happening, and how do you try to um, ensure that you know world neighbor stays relevant, um, mm -hmm. but also will be able to continue to do the work that it needs to do? Well, I think one needs to except that that kind of change is happening constantly. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's not something that's new. I mean, it, it's, it's just the nature of, of, of life is that there are new, new ideas and changes constantly happening. And um, so uh, we are a part of many networks, for example, in around the world with other farmers who might not be working with us, but there's all kinds of innovations happening in agriculture now. There's all kinds of ideas about how to deal with water shortages or flooding or you know, all the implications of climate change in terms of agriculture and uh, creating food security around the world. So uh, we're, we're very involved. We are involved at the very grassroots level of the farmer all the way up through university research that's going on and mm -hmm. into government research as well and government policy development. I mean, that's what makes I think what makes the work so exciting is that you're constantly learning. You're, mm. you think you know about organic agriculture and sustainable agriculture. And of course, that is 
and you would think that would be something that wouldn't be changing so dramatically all the time. And yet, given all the circumstances that we're dealing with, it is, it's an ever-changing um, area. I think that you could say that about pretty much every sector that we deal with. One of the things that I really love about the World Neighbors approach, we are not a one-sector organization. We believe that in order for whole communities and people to really lift themselves out of poverty, we need to address all the different aspects of their lives. And so we take a very holistic approach to development and that can take a long time. You could be addressing the most urgent needs of food and water and um, security. And then, you, you know, then gradually get to other areas like education and making sure that women are having a voice in the community and many other things. So that once we leave these communities, which we always, have an exit strategy from day one. Uh, we feel that they've really they're they're much they're able to be on their own, and they've addressed all the myriad different issues that they need to. Um, so, in terms of that issue of of change and you know young people coming in with ideas, I actually find that to be the most thrilling aspect of the work. You know, my organization celebrated last year its 75th uh, anniversary, and I think World Neighbors is also getting close to that. One, one important um, topic that we are looking at in terms of, you know, did we do well and how should we do better is around racial justice, you know, mm -hmm. um, as an organization, as well as our programs, did we address it properly? Um, if, if I ask you to look at the NGO as a sector, um, and I know it's different and difficult to generalize, but I'm asking you it anyway. If you look at the NGO as a sector, how did the NGO sector do in terms of racial justice, and and what should it you know do for the future, or, or are we doing all, everything just fine? I think there are two two areas that really need attention. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is and and uh, you know before I. Before I worked for World Neighbors, I worked for another uh, NGO that got most of its funding from USAID or CDC was healthcare development work. And then I worked at the World Bank. And we still have in the United States, in the development sector, a bias that, uh, that, that experts, Western experts, agriculture experts, econ economists, health experts, they're going to be able to give better advice than a local person. And through my work with World Neighbors, I've really I've changed my mind about that quite a bit. I think that local experts, there are many of them. They speak the language. They are uh, from the places where we're trying to make this change. And they are much more effective almost all the time than bringing in external experts. And I think that that bias then is, you see that um, in, in the United States, especially, I can't really speak for other countries where there's sort of a big international development sphere. It's, it's not a racially diverse group of people, maybe at the World Bank, but other than that, um, in most of these organizations, we don't have a lot of African-Americans. We don't have a lot of 
of people from Asian descent. Um, it is not a highly diverse um, group of people who are developing these ideas that we're talking about, you know, the sort of ever-changing innovations that are happening. So I think we need to do a lot of work to try to bring in uh, a more diverse young population, teach, teach it teach these issues in universities and then encourage people from many different backgrounds to come into the to come into the field um, and then it's related the second issue I think that's really problematic is that we tend to believe that a Westerner is a better chief of party or, you know, sort of head of the organization in the field because they have native English, they write English better, you know, and they, they're going to be able to sort of uh, manage the donors better than somebody who's local. And maybe that's true. But if we're really trying to uh, create capacity on the ground, which we say we all of us say we're trying to do, then we need to be hiring local people more. And and are you good at that at World Neighbors? Yes, About the we, two issues that you just mentioned. Seven staff of which fifty three are all local people. Mm. They come from the countries where they work. They speak not only the primary language but many times dialects of those of those countries. They have expertise in various sectors. Uh, you know, they, they, they're great. They're, they're fantastic staff. And they're, and they also have this, um, kind of in, you know, <laughs> that you're not going to have if you're coming from overseas. I actually wanted to ask you a, a question because you, in the beginning of our conversation, you alluded to you know, empowerment of women, giving opportunities for girls. Um, if you look at your own career, um, yeah, so so is there a lesson that you learned that you would like, you know, to, to share with the young girls out there who also ultimately would like to, uh, to be in a leadership position in the work, uh, in, you know, in the sector that you and I work? Oh, that's a tough one. I think I think there's still a lot of obstacles for women. <laughs> I mean, they're not necessarily at the lower or middle management level, but once you start getting into um, you know top leadership positions, you don't see a lot of women. Um, I was a, World Neighbors was a member of Interaction for a long time, mm -hmm. and they had uh, you know they had a separate. A kind of retreat for women CEOs of, of NGOs. And it was not a big group. <laughs> I was really pretty surprised. Um, mm. And there are very powerful, fantastic CEOs who are women it, running some of the biggest international development groups um, in the world. Mm. But the, the obstacles are still very much there. And uh, it's a lot of the things that that held me back are, are still in place. And so it's, it's still gonna be a tough uphill climb for a lot of young women. Unfortunately, that's kind of a negative, kind of a depressing message, but it, it's just the, it's the reality that I've mm -hmm. seen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah the, you know, these type of conversations go always fast. Yeah, any last message that you might have for the listeners or an invitation that you have for the listeners or a question that you have for the listeners? I guess, 
one thing that I, I always like to talk about when I'm giving you know lectures at universities or speaking with uh, civic groups or or um, any kind of um, opportunity they have is that and and it's kind of a it's a moot point for the people who would be listening to your podcast because they clearly are global citizens. They're interested. They want to hear what, what people are doing out there in the world. But I would encourage them to continue to be clued into what's happening in the world. Uh, you obviously care. And there are many things that people can do. I know sometimes it feels like your little bit is not that important, but it is. It's very important. And uh, as we talk today about community, the more you can gather a community together to share your ideas, to share what other people uh, may have to offer, the better. I think one of the things that's happened with COVID is that we've become so kind of atomized. You know, everybody's had to stay isolated and in their homes, and we need to get back to mechanisms for um, sharing with each other and. Um, hopefully pretty soon being able to get out into the world again and travel and uh, become involved with our fellow humans. <laughs> yeah, any, any question that I should have asked you and didn't? Uh, no, I, I, was when, I, was, I was waiting for you to ask me about the song and you did. <laughs> um, I guess I would like to ask you if you yeah. could tell me a little bit about how I know that your position is in um, measurement and kind of looking at impact. Could you tell us a tiny bit about how you do that? Because that that's a big challenge for everyone in in my in my work sphere. Yeah. Now you're asking me a very difficult question. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I will I will try. Um, and but but uh, no, so it's a position that I recently uh, took um, because I was our before I was our executive vice president, you know, more mm -hmm. responsible for strategy. Um, since the beginning of the year, I'm the chief sustainability and impact officer. And there are two things that I can say, two or three things that I can say about it. There's one is it's still a job that is evolving, um, you know, especially mm -hmm. the, in, the sustainability uh, title or, or word is used to look at sustainability really in the widest sense of, of the word, you know, a broad definition, looking both at the sustainability of the organization as a whole, as well as, you know, contributing to the sustainable development goals, to, mm -hmm. um, to put it simple. Impact has to do with, um, yeah, I mean, that, you know, time is ticking. And, uh, how do you how do you get in business terms, um, you know, the best return of investment? Um, and again, that's you know broader than maybe the business point of view, where you look at the dollars. Now it's also investment in girls and women, and how they will contribute again to those seventeen sustainable development goals. Um, and but why I was looking at at uh, why I came up with uh, this interest in the inner development goals, Kate is. You know, if you look at impact in making a difference in the world, you know, it was also about why going back to the mission and vision of the organization, the purpose, why are we there? And again, the most simple translation for, for me 
and that's still part of the discussion within the organization is how do we contribute to those 17 sustainable development goals that we as a world identified? Um, and how can you do that in, in the best way? And then I realized um, in order to do so, you also need to develop yourself. You have uh, unique abilities, uh, your, uh, yourself and skills, as well as community. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the people, you know, are working for CWS and our partners. So um, it's something that uh, we are still trying to figure out and how you measure that. You know, I, I hope I will have an answer soon, but looking at the situation from a distance and, you know, how do you make a, a difference? It's about, yeah, um, how do we develop ourselves in such a way that uh, we, you know, we really make progress. Um, in this world and make this world develop sustainability, uh, make an impact and uh, make, you know, uh, ensure that our children will have a future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And, and I think this idea of inner development goals is going to be very appealing to everybody as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, it's, it's not to say that you don't need data. Of course, you need data uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, science is important uh, as well. But uh, I, I think the way the inner development goals are being, are, are developing and are evolving is also looking at that. It's, uh, it's also about, yeah really developing skills and abilities to uh, move our agenda forward. And the 70 sustainability goals are very tangible. Um, mm -hmm. Not always easy to measure, um, especially if you have relatively smaller uh, type of projects. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I don't know if it's a helpful uh, answer. It's still, it's still developing, but I, I, what I really like about the fact that we came up with this title is that um, I think we started the right conversation. Now it's, right. it's, uh, um, yeah, you know, making it part of our agenda and, and not talking about, you know, when you talk about COVID, for example, for me, it's not going back to what it was before. It's, it's how do you deal with the situation that we have now? And, right. uh, you know, even if COVID is going away, influenza will be there. So what does that mean for us as a, as an organization, as an individual. If we think about travel of coming together, how can we learn from the last two years to make it still, um, making these Zoom calls that we, you and I have now very valuable and continue to be valuable. That doesn't mean that there is not an added value if we meet in person, but maybe we can be smarter of when and where we meet and how. So, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um fascinating and and creating kind of depth that most people don't don't really bring to this question of sustainability and impact um you know as you say of course data matters but there's so many other aspects to uh what happens when a, a when people really change and um they are able to get out of this level of poverty where all they can think about really is their next meal mm -hmm. um, and start to think about many other aspects of their lives, uh, improve their health, improve their education, and then of course, help their children to have much better lives than they, than they led. 
So it's very, I, I think it's, I mean, I've learned a lot from <laughs> uh, both preparing for and then listening to you today. Thank you. Yeah. No, th- thank you. And that's what I, I hope, you know, this podcast is contributing a little bit to is it's, it's built on, on the premise that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial, so that you see that, you know, um, you can build on, even if the commonality is small, uh, that can be a start of a dialogue, a conversation, and even collaboration, ultimately. So, so um, yeah, I so hope that the podcast uh, days that is we doing that. Find ways to talk to each other mm. and listen to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, listening especially um, mm. is, is really important. We should, as a world, listen more. And I think uh, we'll make big strides forward. Yeah, thank you so much, Kate, for, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot. So uh, as I always do from people I talk with, it's pretty amazing. I feel so privileged always. So uh, yeah, thank you so much. And, and good luck with everything you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Walk talk, listen, please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.